Y'all give God glory. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Lord. We still need some chairs. I real quick, I need you guys to scooch to the center because we still have, I mean, we actually have people that come in and had to turn around and go back out. If you guys do me a favor and just kind of scooch in, we'll get some more in here. I am so glad to see all of you here, man. What a awesome thing. Y'all give God glory for that. Amen. So you are joining us in week three of a sermon series called The Truth. And today we're going to talk about the truth about marriage. And there's a couple of things that I want to set out for you. When I was going through and preparing this message, I became acutely aware that I missed almost every single point I'm getting ready to preach on. I mean, there were a lot of the things I'm going to talk about here in a little while that, that, I, that I didn't do in my own marriage. But I want you to know that I, have the, I could not be happier being married. As a matter of fact, I, I would tell you this. I have the best marriage of anybody I know. I'm just going to be honest with you. I love being married, and, and it is a blessing to me. And so when I think about that, then I go back and I look at God's Word, and He gave me all these instructions, and I messed up on a lot of that stuff, yet I am happily married. I, I want you to remember a couple things as we go through this. There isn't anybody in this room that's going to say, oh, did that, did that, did that, doing that, did that, did that. None of us are going to do that 100% of the time. What we have to remember is, is that even when we get it wrong, through Christ, it gets made right. Can I get an amen? That even though we make mistakes in our marriage, even though we make mistakes in our life, Christ's forgiveness covers all of those things. There are a lot of you here this morning that are already married, and you're thinking, well, I'm not exactly sure why I need to hear a message on what it means to be married. There are going to be things during this sermon that I want you to begin striving for, that if you don't already have the things we talk about, then write those down say, I need to commit myself prayerfully to being what God has called me to be in my marriage. There are some of you here that are not married, and I'm going to give you instructions on how to, how to find that mate and what they're supposed to look like and what marriage is supposed to look like and the, and the design for marriage, so you, you take good notes. There are some of you here that are not meant to be married. The Bible says very specifically that not everybody is called to be married. As a matter of fact, Paul kind of looks at us and is kind of sorry for us. He said, you know what, if you have to get married, I guess go ahead, but it's better to be like I am. But at the same time, those of us who are happily married kind of look at Paul and kind of feel sorry for him because he missed out on a great deal. The thing is, is that God has a blessing for you whether you are called to be married or not called to be married. One of my great regrets is this, is that I, I was uh, 29 years old before I got married. And when I look back on that now, the, the truth of the matter is this, is that I, I didn't want to be married because I was looking around at all of my friends who were getting married and it's going through these horrible circumstances. I looked at my own parents. I, I, I looked at, at, at people that I knew and I loved and I trusted. And I thought, man, I don't want to do that. I, I, I don't want to be in that kind of relationship. I, I just don't want to go through the strife. I am better off flying solo. And, as, and then I started thinking, you know what? And besides, who would want you know, to marry me and you know, all the junk that I bring with, you know, with me and all that stuff? And, and I praise God that Christina was stubborn. Amen. Now, she's still stubborn, and I'm not sure about praising God about it, but that's a whole different lesson. We'll talk about that some of the time. But I will tell you this. When I think about my marriage now, and think about how I started, I wish I would have done my marriage the way that God prescribed it. This is what I want you to hear. That God can overcome anything through the blood of Jesus. If you get married for the wrong reasons, to the wrong person, at the wrong time, for wrong everything, he can still make a covenant relationship out of that marriage. That is the power of Christ. But I want you to hear this. 
especially you guys sitting right here in the front, that if you will follow what he has prescribed, I promise you, life will be so much better for you. That if you will do what he has prescribed in this, in this Bible, if you will follow the instructions that he has given you, you will not have to go through a lot of the same troubles that, that a lot of us went through. Now, all of you married people, get your amen or ready, okay? In your marriage, you will face troubles of many kind. That's just a fact of life. But it's through those exact same things, those exact same strides, that we are actually able to join together and have a relationship that honors God. This morning we're going to talk about the marriage covenant and what it means to be married under God's plan. Y'all bow your heads with me. Lord God, we come before you this morning, and Father, we just praise your name that you do have a plan for us, and that your plan covers everything. It doesn't just cover salvation, Father, that's where it starts, but Lord, you have a plan for every single part of our life. And Father, you have a plan for us in marriage. And Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to, to line these things out for us because your plan in our life is to have a life of abundance through Christ. And Lord, I just pray that as we talk about marriage and we talk about some of those things in here, Lord God, that we would all be convicted of where we need to be aiming, what we should be striving for in our marriages. And Father, don't ever let us forget that forgiveness is available in all circumstances, that the blood of Jesus covers all things. Father, I pray that what we do here is pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that I am obedient to you in the words that are spoken here this morning. Father, and I pray that the words just flow gently from an empty cross, an empty tomb right to our hearts. Father, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right, take out your Bibles, hold them way up in the air. Let me see your Bibles. Hold up your Bibles. Let me see them. Make sure you bring your Bible to church. If you happen to have forgotten your Bible this morning, we have you covered. If you will raise your hand right now, we have some guys right back there at the back. They already have the Bible in their hands. If you'll raise your hand, we will bring a Bible out to you. Come on, I know some of y'all need Bibles. Just admit it. All right, they're back there if you want them. Listen, if you want an extra Bible for your truck or something to put in your backpack or you're off something like that, consider it our gift. They're on the table right back there underneath the exit sign. Turn over to Genesis 2. We're going to start over there as we start talking about marriage. I'm going to give you three points today, three very specific points on what marriage is and the truth about marriage. If you found Genesis 2, say, I'm there. Genesis 2.18 says this. The first thing is marriage is God's design. Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. This is the first thing I want you to hear. Marriage is God's idea, not ours. We didn't make it up. We didn't think this would be a great institution to have in place. God is the one who very specifically designed marriage, planned marriage, and put a purpose for marriage out there. And right now I'm going to give you three little points of his purpose. And the first purpose is this. The first part of his design, y'all ready for this? Is this. Marriage is between one man and one woman. That is what the Bible says. As a matter of fact, it says this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, I want you to think about this and sort of consider why is it that God did it this way? Some would say, well, he created woman because he didn't get it right the first time when he created man. Some of us might be specimens of why that happened that way, amen? But I want you to think about why God, after creating Adam said, I need to create woman for him. 
When God created the heavens and the earth, he said, let there be, and there was. And then he said what? And it was good. God said, let there be, and there was. And God said, it was good. God said, let there be, and there was. And it was He looked at Adam and saw there was no helper for him and said what? It is not good. Put yourself in Adam's perspective. Put put yourself in his place. He falls asleep. He doesn't even know what's going on. He falls asleep. And after some period of time, we don't know what period of time it was, he wakes up. And think about this. Before he'd gone to sleep, what had he been doing? He'd been naming all the animals. Okay, that's a cow. That's a donkey. That's a chicken. That's a buzzard. Lord, how many of these things did you make? That's, you know, and he does all that. And so the last thought he had was a donkey. That, I mean, that, that's what he was thinking about. Then he wakes up and he sees who? Eve. And he goes, thank you, God. <laughs> the very first time we, we hear that, thank you, God. And so Adam is looking at Eve in all of her beauty. And what must have been running through his mind? Well, she kind of looks like me, but, but different. She kind of acts like me, but different. We, we kind of have the, the same purpose, but different. Now, you might be thinking that God had just thought up this kind of the same, but different routine, but I want to remind you, that is the definition of the Trinity. God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit kind of look the same, but different. Kind of act the same, but different. Have kind of the same purpose, but different. That each one complements the other. Christ made it the same, but different, because that is the model of the Trinity. He did not intend... For it to be in any other fashion than one man and one woman. God's physical design for marriage is between two very similar but two quite different types of beings. And he did this because he has a very specific plan and a very specific purpose. The second point is this. First is one man, one woman. The second point is this. Marriage is only between believers. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership? Now watch this. Watch these words. Partnership. We're going to talk about this in just a moment, but marriage is a partnership. And what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Can light actually exist with darkness? Can light and dark be in the same place? Can a room be both light and dark at the same time? The answer to that is no. And because of that, we are not to be unequally yoked. We are to be married to people who are also believers. Now... When you get into the dating game and you're at that point where you think, you know, God is leading me to that, to that place to start looking for my mate, you have to be able to ask this question. When you start getting googly-eyed with somebody else and your heart starts doing those little flip-flops, you know, and all that other stuff, you have to ask yourself the question, am I allowed to date that person? I'm not saying allowed because my parents said it was okay. I'm not saying allowed because, you know, the pastor said it was okay. I'm asking you, according to what the Bible says, is it okay for you to even consider them? If they are not Christian, the answer to that is absolutely never, ever, ever no. 
Remember, there is no such thing as casual dating. There is no such thing as, oh, we're just buddies going out for a little while. There's no such thing as that. That every single relationship has the potential to turn out to be the one. And so ask yourself the question, should I be allowed to date that person? Should I allow myself to date the person? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about dating. You're making googly eyes at each other. You dig her, she digs you. You know, the big question comes up, hey, would you like to go out? Your church or mine, they say, I don't go to church. It's done. End of the relationship, right then and there. Kaput. You certainly invite them to church, but do not be unequally yoked. The second question you have to ask, will say, is it permissible to date this person? Then the next question, question is this, is it wise to date this person? You see, and there's a lot of us in here who got this one wrong. Amen? Is it wise to date this person? If the answer to that is anything other than yes, then don't date them. This may seem cold-blooded, but I want you to hear something. There is a tragedy awaiting you if you ignore these simple biblical truths. There is a life of strife, of anger, of discontent, and discord. If you are married to somebody who does not hold the same beliefs, the same values, the same morals, the same ethics as you. As a matter of fact, we get back to that passage. What fellowship can there possibly be? Now, some of you in this room right now are thinking, uh-oh, I got this one wrong. I am already married, and I'm married to somebody who is not a believer. What do I do with that? Well, the Bible has a very specific answer for that. It says this in 1 Corinthians 7. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the un- Listen to this. Watch this. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. The Bible is saying this, that if you are a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, then you ask God for guidance. You're not to divorce that person. You're not to say, oh, I guess I got it wrong. I can just go ahead and divorce this person and get out. That's not the answer. The Bible is telling us if you find yourself in that position, then you have a responsibility to that person to show them what the righteous life looks like, to lead that righteous life, and hopefully lead them to Christ. First Peter actually said this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Marry a believer. Point number three is this. Marriage has a purpose. The first purpose is this. There is the purpose of companionship. We go back to Genesis. It says this, It is not good that man should be alone. Guys, we don't do well by ourselves. Can I get an amen for that? We do better when we have somebody beside us. And God created us. Remember, when God created us, we were made in His image. We were made to be like God, to have the attributes of God. And one of the attributes of God is this, is that we are made for fellowship. We are made to have relationship with one another. And God's first relationship, second only to Him, is the relationship that we have with our spouse. The second thing is this. Marriage has a purpose of partnership. Genesis 2.18 again says, I will make a helper fit for him. When you look at the marriage covenant and the purpose of family, when you look at what it is we've been called to do, God has designed us to be alongside one another. There is a very specific role in the family for the husband. 
There's a very specific role in the family for the wife. They are different yet similar roles. The marriage is stronger when man and woman are in partnership in their marriage. The third thing is this. You're to be in relationship. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That relationship is not just emotional, it's not just spiritual, but there's also a physical relationship that God has blessed us with. And that part of the purpose of our, of our relationship with each other is to actually procreate and do all those wonderful things we're going to talk about next week. Amen? But God has designed us to be that way. We go back to point number one, between man and a woman. It can only happen between a man and a woman. But God has designed us to grow the family because ultimately our purpose is that of discipleship. In Deuteronomy 6, it says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. I will tell you that the very basic tenet of everything we do here at Fellowship is that passage right there. That as a family, that your responsibility is to teach your children to love the Lord so that they will teach their children to love the Lord and their children will love the Lord. The Bible tells us that what we do now will affect thousands of generations beyond us. That begins with the perfect marriage covenant, with the marriage relationship. If you begin to think about the purpose of marriage ultimately being discipleship, and you start comparing everything else in your marriage to that purpose, does our purpose in doing this activity meet the purpose of discipleship? You need to ask the question. If the answer to that is no, it doesn't have anything to do with that, then you should question as a family, is this a, something that we should be engaged in? Ultimately, the purpose of your marriage, the purpose of your relationship with your spouse, is to glorify God, and we do that by leading people to Christ. Amen? All right, point number two. Point number one is God, marriage is God's design. Point number two is marriage is based on love. Now, does this seem obvious to you? I mean, how many of y'all think that, yeah, obviously marriage is based on love? Can, can I see your hands? Right? I mean, it's not. I tell you, one of the things that breaks my heart is I, I have people that come through for, for counseling and, and just say, man, my marriage is on the rocks and I'm just struggling with these things. And we go back and we start sort of recreating, telling about your marriage, telling about your life and stuff like that. And, and I hear these things all the time. Well, you know, I, 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 was, I was 18 years old and I wanted out of my house and the quickest way to get out of my house was what? To marry the guy. Is that a marriage based on love? No. I had somebody in a couple weeks ago said, you know, I, I, I just never really had many dates and, and, and nothing just really happened in my life. And finally, this guy pays attention to me, asked me to marry him, and I thought it was my last chance. So I said, yes. Is that a marriage based in love? Here's my, my favorite one. You know, I've been with this guy for a long time. We've been dating for years and years and years, and our relationship is just getting worse. We thought getting married would fix it. You guys, I mean, you're looking at these blank stares, but you know you've heard the stories. You have friends that have said those exact same things. I want you to remember this, that marriage is based on love, not convenience. Your marriage should be based on those things that just make you lose your mind. You should have such a love for that other person that you just really can't think about anything else. As a matter of fact, the love that you have for your marriage partner should be this exact same love that Christ has for the church. This is what it says in Ephesians 5. It says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wife, watch this, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Let's talk about the wife first, that word submit. It, man, it's a funny thing. When people come in and, and they want to do counseling for, for marriage and they want me to do the wedding ceremony, half the time the wife says, now listen, I don't want that submit thing in my marriage. You, you hear me, right? Why not? That's, what, that's how a marriage is honored. See, people get twisted up and think that word submit means, well, I'm going to be a servant to my husband. That I'm going to have to just do everything he says to do. Man, I've got bad news for you. That's not what that means at all. But wives, this is what it does mean. It means this. It means that, we are, that wives are to be alongside their husbands. That word submit has an opposite. And that is against. That passage is saying, wives, do not be against your husband, but be alongside him. You should be alongside him with a voluntary attitude of cooperation, of sharing the burden, not carrying the burden, and sharing the responsibility of the household. Now, it's always been interesting to me that Christ did not tell the wife to love the husband. Paul didn't write that, didn't write it anywhere. I've read a lot of commentaries on that. Ask the question. You know why? Because it's a foregone conclusion that the wife is wired better to love than we are. But men, you and I, we can take a lesson from our wives on what love looks like. That we should model our relationship with her after her relationship with us. And then we are to love her as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church, by the way? Does anybody know how Christ loved the church? He hung on the cross for the church. He gave up his life for the church. He made everything in his being about the church. Men, we are to make everything in our being about our wives. That we are to put her on a pedestal. That we are to make her the most important thing. More so than our children. More so than our work. More so than anything else out there, there should not be ever, ever be anything more important to you or more mind-occupying than your wife. One of the challenges we run into, though, is that we end up confusing love with attraction. Because they kind of start off in the same place. Love and attraction kind of look the same when they're beginning. But the fact is, is that attraction will never, ever, ever build a solid relationship. Now, when you look at God's complete and total plan, he said this, no sex before marriage, period. Now, just so we're all on the same page, we'll talk about this more next week, let's define sex. Sex is not just the act. Sex is anything that causes you to have those emotions. That's why the Bible says, until you are married, the only way that you can greet, your, greet each other is with a holy kiss. The reason that God designed it that way is because when that attraction exists ahead of the spiritual relationship, the marriage is built on a sandy foundation. When a marriage is built on physical attraction, it will not withstand the storms that are coming at it. However, when a marriage is built on spiritual affection, on true, Christ-like, abiding love, then that marriage is on a foundation that can never be washed away. So how do you know the difference between attraction and love? 
Well, Paul wrote about that, a passage that all of you are very familiar with. He said this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love, now watch this, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. When you start looking around at the relationship that you're in, you start comparing that relationship to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13. Then I'm going to give you eight signs that you're on the right track. Eight signs that what you're experiencing is actually love. The first one is this, is that you're accepting of that person. You see, when you marry somebody, you're not just marrying them on that day and your relationship begins from that day forward. Because when you marry somebody, you are accepting every single life experience they have ever had. The failures, the successes, the triumphs, the flameouts. You're accepting every single part of who they are. And you know that it's true love when somebody else sees a fault, but you just see character in them. You accept that person in totality. That there is not a single part of their life that you do not accept completely and wholly. The second thing is this. You look for opportunities to honor them. You look for opportunities to lift them up, to build them up and encourage them. The opposite of that is, if you find yourself constantly trying to put them down and pull them down, then what you're experiencing is not love. That is a sure sign of a relationship built on attraction. The third one is this, and, and, and I love that this one's one of my favorites because I remember this little movie clip where I just thought, man, that was the sappiest thing I've ever heard. I can't believe they just said this. There's this one little part where this girl says, oh, he just completes me. But that's number three. I will tell you, that is a sign of love. Now think about this. That's biblical. Men, we are incomplete without our wives. She has one of our ribs. Wives, you are incomplete without your husband because you've been made from that rib. When you think about completeness in love, when you think about completeness in a relationship, that means that there is a gap within your life when you're not with them. There is a gap that's in your life when you make decisions without them. That you don't feel like that you have any independence. And this is a good thing because the Bible says two shall become how many? One. And that means without each other, you're incomplete. The fourth thing is this, attraction. The person that you're in love with, you should be attracted to. Now, pay, pay close attention. That means this. Now, I want you to hear this. That even before you're married, you should be aware of a desire to consummate your marriage. You should be aware of the sexual attraction you have for that person doesn't mean that you should go out there and try it out. No sex before marriage, but you should be aware of that. Here's the opposite, and I've heard this before. If you have all the other things we're talking about, but every time he touches you, your skin goes cold, that's not love. If you have all the other things we're talking about, and just the thought of kissing her makes you just retreat, that's not love. Because a very significant part of God's plan for us is to be attracted to one another. Because remember, one of the commands that he gave us was to fill the earth. Fifth thing is this, approval. You seek their approval for everything, even the stupid little things. That you want them to approve of the way that you dress. You want them to approve of the way that you talk. You seek their approval for what you're doing. And their approval lifts you up 
But when you're seeking that approval for them, from them, and they don't return, instead they use words that tear you down, then you must question whether that love is shared. And this is a huge point. The love between a man and a woman can't be just one way. It has to be mutually returned. If you constantly seek their approval, but they don't seek yours, then you have to ask the question, are they truly in love with me? The sixth thing is this. You live the life of sacrifice for them. You put their wants and needs ahead of your own. You are more concerned with their well-being than you are your own. You are more concerned about their desires than yours. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says that Christ gave his life for the church, that we are to love our spouses in that exact same way. The seventh thing is this, is that you have a sense of security when you're with them and a sense of security when you're not. Now watch this. If you and your googly-eyed partner are apart, and all you experience are feelings of jealousy and wondering and questioning, you have a relationship that is not built on spiritual love, but you have a relationship that's built on what? Attraction. You should have that sense of security no matter what is going on in your life, even when, now listen, again, married people, you have a chance to say amen. I know this is a shock to you, but once you get married, even when you have all this kind of love, you are still going to have intense fellowship. Amen? And even in that time of intense fellowship, even when you are arguing and fussing, you still are completely secure in your marriage. You are still completely secure in your relationship. But here's the kicker. Number eight is the most important one. You've got to have all these at the same time. You've got to have them all. You say, well, you know what? I've got five out of seven. I'll work on the other two once we get married. No. And I'm going to tell you, many of us in this room did that. Glory be to God that he can even work with people like us. Amen? But friends, I want to tell you that if you're aiming towards that marriage relationship, if you're in the game right now, then you make this list out and you check these things off. That every single one of these things has to be, has to be present at the exact same time. Now, married people, some of you are looking at that list going, I don't have all of those today. I, I, I am married right now. And I don't have all those. Well, guess what? Now you have something to plan for. Now you have something to pray about. Now you have something to start working towards because this is God's plan in your marriage. Amen? All right, point number three is this. Marriage is permanent. I'm going to say it again, and you're going to say amen. Marriage is permanent. Matthew 19 says this. He answered, Have you not read... That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Now let's walk through and see what Jesus just did. Because Jesus just gave the entire history of the world in that one passage. He said, first of all, pay attention. God is the creator. There is no other author. God is the one that did it. Number two. God is the one that created man and woman. That was God's doing, not ours. Number three, God is the one who created marriage. He is the one that designed marriage, and he's the one that purposed marriage. And number four, don't mess with what God did. Amen? That's what the Bible says up there. As a matter of fact, Hosea 2.19 says this, And I will betroth to you me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. 
in steadfast love and in mercy. Now, I know, I know, some of you in this room have already experienced divorce. I want to go back to what I said at the very beginning of this message. God's forgiveness covers all things. That if you have experienced the tragedy of divorce in your life, the worst thing you can do is start assigning blame. And I encourage you this morning, oh, it was her fault. It was his fault. Don't do that. Don't be in that place. You be before God, not blaming anybody else, but saying, God, I need your forgiveness for my part in that relationship. And God, I thank you, important, I thank you for that forgiveness, which is promised to me by the blood of Jesus. And God, show me what your plan is for me from this point forward. There are only two circumstances in the Bible where divorce is permissible. Now, I, I want to I make sure that you understand this. It doesn't say there are two places in the Bible where divorce is recommended. It just says there are two places in the Bible where it's okay. The first of those is in the case of adultery. Now, adultery, if you go back to what Christ talked about, is not just a man having relations with a woman outside of marriage, according to what Christ said, thinking about those sorts of things. There's a lot there we're going to talk about here in a couple of weeks. But adultery is one of those instances. It doesn't say you should get divorced. It just says if you end up there, Christ says it's okay. The second case is when you are married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever leaves. Now pay attention. If you're a Christian and you're married to someone who is not a Christian and the non-Christian in the relationship decides to divorce you, the Bible says it's okay to let them go. You will not be an adulterer if you go out and remarry. Now the interesting thing is that people come in and they say, well, isn't there a third one where the Bible says it's okay? And that third one is abuse. The Bible does not specifically address divorce and abuse. There is not a passage in Scripture that says, if thou art abused, thou shalt leave. But what it does say is this. I wrap all that stuff back up in the same place. That when somebody is treating a spouse with abuse, that is not a part of Christ's plan. That is not somebody living a life of sacrifice for them. That is somebody that has put their own pride ahead of that relationship. And I know for certain, even though it's not spelled out specifically in the text, that Christ would bless that opportunity for you to be out of that relationship. And I just want to encourage you, if that's where you find yourself, please come find one of us. We want to talk about that. But I'm going to move off the divorce thing. I just want you to know that God's forgiveness, the blood of Jesus, covers all things. Amen? Now, so let's say you don't have any of those other items over there. That you don't have all those things that are out there that you find that your marriage is in a place right now that you struggle every single day, that you wake up in the morning and go, oh man, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it through this day. Or maybe, you're, you know what? maybe your marriage is just kind of lukewarm. Do you know that God has no intention for your marriage just to be lukewarm? That God has every intention for your marriage to be the most exciting part of your life? Not, not, not the part where your kids are doing great things in school or, or your business is doing wonderful things. The most exciting part of your life should be your marriage. That is the way that God set it up. Remember, God designed it that way. So these are the ways to keep your marriage safe. First thing is this, and these, a couple of these are going to be obvious. You pray together. You have heard the statement, a family that prays together, stays together. I think that's a good start, but it doesn't just stop with prayer. Just praying together 
is not enough to keep your marriage safe from all the attacks that would come out there. You must also do this. You must also be in church together. I am blessed to see all of you here this morning. I know that there are some of you who have spouses at home that refuse to come to church. Let me take a moment to speak to you. In the same way that we tell parents, because we have parents come in all the time and say, hey, Junior doesn't want to come to church, what should I do? And our answer is very, it's the same every time. Make them come to church. I, I, don't, I don't know how much more plain we could be about that. You're the mom, you're the dad, um, you rule, you pay the bills, all that other stuff, you make them come to church. End of story. Well, I don't want to offend them. Let me ask you which is worse, being apart or being together? The answer to that is what? Together. If you have a spouse that refuses to come to church, then you figure out how to get them in church to this point. If they just don't want to be at fellowship, then go find another church to go to. But you and your spouse be in church somewhere, a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching, Bible-living church. I don't care where it is. The most important thing is for you and your spouse to be in church somewhere. The third thing is this. You have to spend time together. And I mean alone time together. I mean, I'm not talking about the kids in the same car with you. I'm not talking about the kids in the same restaurant with you. I'm not talking about any of that. I mean, you and your spouse have time where there are no distractions between the two of you. You plan that time out every single day. That there has to be a point in time where you don't do anything but just enjoy each other's company. That you don't sit there and stare at each other and be uncomfortable, but you, but you be honest and humble before one another in spending your time together. The fourth thing is this. You have to study God's Word together. Friends, I cannot begin to tell you how important that is for you and your spouse to be engaged in Bible study. Whether it's just, just a reading of a scripture or sharing stuff across email, but that you guys have something in common in the Bible every single day. That there is some topic of discussion that you're engaged in. Now these first four things are between you and your spouse. spouse. The next three things have to do with your, you and your spouse being out. Number five is this. Surround your marriage with successful marriages. I had somebody in my office the other day, and they said this. Man, we're just so discouraged. Why are you discouraged? Because all the marriages of our friends, they're all falling apart. My answer to them, you need some new friends. You should surround yourself with successful marriages. Husbands and wives, the people you hang out with, if that, if that man continues to run his wife down, don't hang out with that guy. If the wife is always griping and sniping and all that stuff, don't hang out with them. Those are not God-honoring marriages. You need to be around people that have like-minded values and like-minded goals. This may seem very critical, but friends, I'm telling you, God has created us for fellowship with each other. Surround your marriage with successful marriages. Number six, seek out a mentoring couple. This is especially aimed at the younger couples. We have been blessed. We, we, have, we have family. As a matter of fact, I was talking to um, Carl Williams at HEB. Next week, Carl and Lorraine celebrate 66 years of marriage. They'll be here in the 11 o'clock service. Y'all give God glory for that. I, I, said, I said, Carl, that, that's, that's just amazing. Um, she must have put up with you for a long time. She said, her put up with me, she's the one that's hard-headed. What I want you to hear in that is that 66 years does not come without a lot of hard work. And those people have been through things that you are eventually going to go through. They have experienced things that you're eventually going to experience. And so surround yourself with a mentoring couple. Now, as a part of that, if you want a mentoring couple, I actually have a list of couples that are willing to do that. 
You just give me a call, send me an email, we'll do that. Number seven is this, get into counseling. I cannot begin to tell you, if I could do anything in your life today, if I could force you to do something, I would force you into counseling. If I could just have that, and you're saying, but my marriage is not in trouble. Listen, the key is, don't wait until your marriage is in trouble to do all these things. Don't get to the point where you're either going to the lawyer or going to the church. You start protecting your marriage right now by praying together, by being in church together, by studying the Bible together, by spending time together, by surrounding yourself with these wonderful couples, by go, going into counseling. Go when your marriage is strong and build from that. And well, I just don't have the time to do that sort of thing. I don't have time to give to stuff like counseling, or I don't have time to go spend, you know, have dinner with a mentoring couple or something like that. Then where exactly is your commitment? What exactly are you committed to in your life? Your relationship with your spouse is second only to your relationship with Christ. Maybe it's because your relationship with Christ is not where it needs to be. When I think about the marriage relationship, and I think about the ring on my finger, that every time I look at that ring, I think about the commitment. Till death do us part. You see, the commitment that we have with one another is not based on our abilities or our desires. The commitment that we are able to have is because Christ first committed to us. Christ is the one who designed this. He is the one that planned it. And Christ showed us what a life of commitment is to look like. This morning, it may be that what you need in your life is Christ. That the very first step that you need to take is to commit your life to Him as your Lord and Savior. Perhaps what you need this morning is prayer over your marriage or prayer over your spouse. Whatever it is you need this morning, we're going to pray about that and give you that opportunity. Bow your heads with me. Father, we just come before you right now and Lord, we just give you glory. Father, we just thank you for the promise that you have made us in marriage, for the commitment that we're able to have with one another, not because of who we are, but because of the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us. Lord, I pray for those right now that are feeling that pull to experience marriage. Lord, that you just give them wisdom, that you give them the eyes to see what you see. Lord, I pray for those that are struggling in their marriage. Lord, that you would just bind them together, that they would just cling with desperation to the cross and to you. Father, I pray for those that have lost a marriage, Lord God, that you would just allow your grace and your mercy just to overflow them, just to overtake them. And Father, I pray that we would all just experience what it means to be forgiven by you. Lord, I pray that this morning as we go into this time of invitation, this time of commitment, 
Lord, that you would be pleased, that you would give strength to those who need strength. In Jesus' name. Friends, you have a decision to make right now. If you're ready to give your life to Christ, then as soon as we stand, you come forward. Let us pray with you. If you need prayer over your marriage, for your spouse, for whatever it is, I encourage you to come forward. We're here to pray with you. Pastor Neal's here. Pastor Kim's here. We have other deacons and elders that are here to pray with you. Perhaps God has called you to be a part of fellowship. Whatever the decision is you need to make this morning, you make that decision right now as we stand together.